I do intend to finish verse 27 this morning of Daniel 9. Everything is, Lord willing. My wife told me not to prepare anything. Uh, that way, I should be done on time. I was like, well, I don't know if that's really right. I mean, like, what am I going to do this? She's like, you got plenty to do. Just don't, don't add a thing. But the only thing I added was two things. <laughs> One is by way of introduction. It is always good to have a plan and good to know the plan. It is always good to have a plan and to know a plan. When you are in a new year, as we are in, it is good as you think about resolutions to have a plan for how that will be implemented, even to have a schedule of what time you're going to do what you set out to do. You need to have a plan. Uh, for students, when there's a new semester, one of the things that they have to adjust to is a new routine, a new set of classes, a new way to work, and so they need to come up with a plan, and the first several weeks can be stressful because there is a transition, a transition to know a plan, and to have a plan and to live in that plan. When you get a new job, you have to have a plan. You want to know where things are going in the workplace and how you fit in and exactly what you are supposed to do and how to manage your time within that. You need to have a plan, and it's good to know that plan. And <clears throat> when you go on a trip, you know that you need a plan. Uh, what I sometimes talk to with students going particularly to Israel is that they have a calendar in front of them where every day there is something mapped out for them to do. It is about their itinerary of where they're going to be traveling or what they're going to be seeing and learning. And I say, you need to know that schedule. You need to be able to anticipate that so that you are not lost and you are not just clueless about what is going on, but you are in control and you can be deliberate in it. Where any kind of trip, you need to have a plan. Even a vacation, you have to have a plan. And then when we talk about vacations, there are two kinds of people. There are the people who get up at 6 a.m. for some strange reason, and then they say, we've got 17 things to do today. We have to do them all now, starting 10 minutes ago. And we just get, and they just go and go and go and go. And they've got everything scheduled out. And of course, in the same family of the planner are those who also have a plan. To be fair, they do have a plan. Their plan is one word, sleep. <laughs> and you always have one kind of planner or another kind of planner, but there is always a plan. It is good to have a plan and good to know a plan, to know the schedule, to know the routine, to know things are on time. And as we've been studying the 70 weeks of Daniel, God has intended to reveal the schedule, the schedule of world history, the schedule particularly of Israel's history as it affects the entire world. He has laid out the timing on it, and as we have said, timing is everything, and within this, though, God has embedded and revealed so many lessons about himself, lessons about his grace, lessons about his purposes for all of history, lessons about his perfect timing, lessons about the timing of the triumphal entry and the veracity of his words, lessons about the cross, lessons about what 70 AD does, and that we are part of this plan, not just outside of it looking in, but inside of it, and our lives must matter and count in the new year. There are so many lessons to be learned. But at the same time, it is sometimes and oftentimes good just to know the plan, just to understand the plan with clarity. And some of you, many of you have come up to me afterwards of these past few weeks and have had lots of questions of, well, what does this exactly mean? And how does this exactly look? And how does this interface with these kinds of implications? And, and I love those questions. And it is a reminder to me that while there is a lot of theology packed in these verses, and it is all intended by God, but that's all based upon a baseline. And the baseline is that God has a schedule. And we should know that schedule because it's good to know and to have a plan. So the second item that I added to the message that was supposed to finish last week is this, that I want to make sure that we walk through this strictly all the way up to the end of verse 27 
to have absolute clarity on the plan, on the plan itself. And so let me be your tour guide, and let me give some review so that we understand from verses 25 through verse 27a, the plan. And here we go. There are 70 weeks assigned to Israel and to the city of Jerusalem, 70 weeks, which are 70 sets of seven years, 70 sets of seven years, seven times seven, 70 times seven rather, is 490. So there are 490 years worth of events that pertain, and this is the key, to the milestones, to the landmark, to the most important moments, to the snapshots and the highlights of Israel's history. 490 years worth. That's what we have. And let's talk about the breakdown. The breakdown of those years begin in verse 25. From the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that happens in 445 B.C. when the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, just like the Bible says. There will be, as the text says, seven and 62 years. Seven and 62 years. Now, a couple observations to be made. Seven plus 62 is 69, but the Bible doesn't say 69. It says seven and 62. And the reason is because you're supposed to know that on the one hand, you have seven sets of seven years. That's about 49 years. And after that, there's going to be something that happens. And what happens is, in a sense, nothing happens. In a sense, the Lord ushers us into a period of silence. Those years of silence that we talk about between the Old Testament and New Testament, it commences after the seven times seven years. That's what happens there. But immediately following, on the other hand, the seven weeks, the seven sets of seven years are 62 weeks. Notice they're grouped together. Notice they're bundled together. Notice it wasn't, hey, there are seven weeks, and then it talks and talks and talks and it goes, and uh, there's also going to be 62 weeks sometime or the other, the other. It doesn't say that. It's very strict. It binds these two things together. It says seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it links them together. It smashes them together. Yes, they're subdivided. That's true, but they are actually also at the same time united grouped together, bundled together. You know where what's going to happen after the seven weeks? You're going to get 62. You know when the 62 weeks are going to happen? After the seven weeks are over. They're grouped together. They're a package deal. That's very, very crucial. Very, very crucial. And so a total of 69 weeks, 69 sets of seven years, that's seven and 62 after that command goes out in 445 B.C., you get it, after you do some calculations, to about 30 A.D. And that is exactly, as the text says, that the Messiah, the prince, shows up. That is when he comes as the prince. Not just a prince, not just one of many princes, the prince. In full royalty, in full splendor, in his triumphal entry. And... Exactly what the text says about the 7 and 62, total of 69 weeks so far, that's exactly what takes place in history. And so we have so far out of the 70 weeks, we have the first 69 covered, 7 plus 62, <clears throat> commissioning from 445 BC, that's what we talk about in verse 25. Then, verse 26, it says, after. After is important, yes, because it demonstrates that whatever is being talked about in verse 26, it doesn't fall on the 69th week or the 7 plus 62nd week. It doesn't fall on that. It falls after it, and it falls before verse 27, the 70th week. And so there are some things that happen in between the 69th week, and the 70th week. This is what creates what we call a gap, a gap between the two. Why does that gap exist? The gap exists because the 
490 years pertain to what nation? The nation of Israel. So everything that's happening on those weeks, on those weeks of years, in those sets of seven years, pertain to the nation of Israel. But if you're talking about something for the Gentiles, it's not going to be in those weeks. It's going to be between those weeks. And so between the 69th year, or the 69th week, rather, and the 70th week, there will be a gap, which is what we call the age of the Gentiles, which is what the scripture calls the times of the Gentiles. And that even includes the church age. And that's what we see even in our lives. More on that in a second. That being said, did you still notice that verse 26 still gives a sense of connectivity? It's after the 69th week, after the 7 plus 62 weeks, after that happens. You still know that gap, yeah, there's going to be a gap that occurs, but you know exactly when the gap is going to happen. It's going to happen after that one set of seven years, the 62nd or the 69th set of seven years takes place. Right after, you got the gap. That's what's going to happen. And so, so far, everything has been tight chronologically. You have seven and 62. You have after that 62, this immediately happens. You have everything interconnected. You have everything linked together. You have everything highly sequenced, both either by direct connection or by preposition. You have it all smashed, juxtaposed, linked, intersized together. That's what you have here. Now, in this gap that is taking place, we know there are two major and important events. One is the cross, and there is nothing more major and central than that. There's nothing more than we depend on than that. And the second event is what we now call the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, let me point out something to you all that is worth observing. Notice that the text says, that the holy city, the city and its sanctuary, will be destroyed by the people of the prince that is to come. The people of the prince that is to come. Some have asked, well, who is this prince that is to come? Is he Jesus? No, no, no. Because Jesus has already been cut off and had nothing. He has already died on the cross. So he's not to come. He's already Come. He's already here in this prophecy. This is a future prince, an anti-prince, shall we say. We would call him the anti-Christ. Some people wonder, well, maybe this was a Roman general because doesn't he have to show up to destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD? Well, look at the text carefully. Does it say that the prince is going to destroy the city? It says no. The what? The people of the prince. Not the prince himself. He's still what? Coming. That means he's going to be here in the future relative to this time. However, his people are already there. And if this is speaking of the boastful horn of Daniel 7 and the leader of the iron kingdom of Daniel 2, then we are talking about the nation of Rome. And is it not true that Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, just like the Bible said? Now, that being said, some people say, well, man, why does it even talk about the prince that is to come then? That's just throwing me off a little bit. It was his people that destroyed it. I get that grammatically, but but why does it even tell you that there's a prince that is to come? Because 70 AD sets the entire gap, sets the entire times of the Gentiles in a singular direction, in a singular trajectory. The time of the Gentiles is moving to the time when the prince that is to come will what? Will come. Everything is heading toward the time of the arrival of the Antichrist. That's what's going on. And you say, well, when is he going to show up? Verse 27. And now we're at the end. And let me just explain the end with some clarity here by what it is and what it is not, and now you'll know why I've belabored some of the points that I've belabored. On the one hand, the word and, is it does not directly link this final week 
with the seven and the 62. It doesn't say, and there was seven, and there was 62, and now there's one more. It doesn't say that in the text. It just says, and. Notice it also doesn't use any adverbs or propositions. It doesn't say, and immediately after the 62 weeks of the seven. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say after immediately or right then following the 69th week, you're going to have this happen. It doesn't do that. All it says is what? And. Just like a kid telling a story. Just like a kid recounting the Bible. What does he say sometimes? How was your day? What is the Bible story like? Well, Jesus died on the cross, and he healed a leper, and he rose from the dead, and he was born. <laughs> You're like, who is your Sunday school teacher? <laughs> you. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and is the most generic conjunction, especially when there's nothing in context that ties it deliberately with some other temporal marker, with some other kind of chronological item, like some other years, or immediately after, or then, or subsequent, or following, or whatever. Just and. And why is that significant? Just as all the other language was so precise, showing a kind of chronology, showing a kind of sequence, showing a kind of immediacy. This is also precise because it shows you exactly the life that we are in right now. When you know that the seven years or seven weeks are up and then immediately 62 follows, you know what happens before and you know what is to come and you know what happens after. But right now, with the simple word and, we have no warning signs of when it's going to happen. It's just an and. We have, no un, we have no precursors, no prerequisites. All we have is the and. There is a reason that Christ can come at any time. There is a reason why the day of the Lord, the 70th week, the final week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy, is like a thief in the night. It can happen anytime. There's a reason that you can set the date and the Jews knew around the date that Christ had to come and they had a messianic awareness about that. We talked about that before. That's why you had all these false messiahs popping up and it's talked about in Acts chapter 5 and it's talked about in Acts chapter 21 and, and Anna and Simeon, they were anticipating the Messiah because the entire Jewish nation knew the timing of the Messiah's birth had to be in a certain zone. They understood that. They could set the date and the hour that way because you had a tight chronology. But there's a reason why Jesus says to us, no one here knows what? The day nor the hour. Because all we have is an and. That's all we have. That's why the and matters. It tells us the Lord's return, the commencement of the sequence of events that culminate in that, can happen at any time. Any time. There are no prerequisites. That's why you could say it this way. Have you ever heard the phrase, the day of the Lord is near? Why is it, it if you think about it, <clears throat> near doesn't always answer the question we want it to answer. What we want is actually the word soon. We want it soon. Are we there yet? No one wants to say, it's near. <laughs> of course it's near. That's, I hope so, because we're going in the right direction. What the kid wants to know is, are we going to be there soon? And we're like little kids when it comes to the day of the Lord. We want it soon. We want Christ to come soon. Amen. Amen. But the Lord doesn't say it's soon. The Lord says it's what? Near. Because it's the next thing on the list. It's the and. But how soon it is, he has not revealed. That's why an and is only an and. God is so precise with his word. He has said there are events that happen in the past that remind us of his faithfulness. There are events that happen in the present that remind us that we are part of his plan. 70 AD happened. The cross happened. There are, as verse 26 says, 
wars that are happening for Israel. Even to this very day, we see it. God's plan is not just around us. It doesn't just circumvent us. We are in the midst of his plan. But for the same reason, God in verse 27 says, and there will be a future. I'm just not going to tell you exactly when it is. It's just an and. And that is what we must remember. And that's what keeps us vigilant. And that's what keeps us hopeful. And you say, okay, I got the plan so far. We got 70 weeks, 7 and 62. Then there's a gap. And then there's an and. Exactly. That's what the flow is so far. And you say, well, what happens after the and happens? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we have three points to talk about in verse 27. Three points to walk through so that we understand not just the plan since 445 B.C., but we know the plan in the final seven years, the final week. And that is what we're going to be discussing. So the plan for this final week, it starts with the counterfeit. The counterfeit. That's the first point. And he will make a covenant with the many for one week. For one week. Now, notice the word he. Who is the he? You could think of it this way. In verse 26, it said, the people of the prince that is to come will destroy the temple and will destroy Jerusalem. And we said, it isn't the prince, he didn't come yet. It's his people that destroyed it. And he's what? Coming. In verse 27, he is here. This he is the Antichrist. And notice it explicitly says in the text that he is interacting for a period of one week. One week. And there are a lot of implications here about the one week. Fundamentally, we have covered, like we said, 7 plus 62, which is 69 weeks of the 70-week prophecy so far. There's been a gap, yes, but we've covered the 69 weeks. This is the final week. This is the 70th week. That's what we need to understand. This is the last one. It isn't connected to the 7 plus 62 for all the reasons that I gave before. Nevertheless, it still is the final week, the 70th week. And just like every week is a set of seven years, this is also a set of seven years. That's why we say that the tribulation period is a set of seven years. We didn't make this up. And this will be confirmed, as I will later show not only in the book of Daniel, but also by the New Testament. But if you're wondering, why in the world does the Bible go out of its way to call this a week? Why can't it just say seven years? Because we can understand seven years. There's a reason why it's a week. And let me give you why it's described this way. Some reasons. One, because a set of seven describes fullness. And so this is dealing with the fullness of time, the fullness of the culmination of history. Like we said a while back, creation was created in a week. And so you will have a new creation made in a quote-unquote week. Instead of seven days, though, it will be seven years. That's what we have here. Also, something to think about that's absolutely fascinating, and it pertains even to the rapture. Sometimes we wonder, what is the purpose of the rapture? Is it just a get-out-of-jail-free card? And that is not Jesus' point about the rapture at all. That's not Paul's point about it at all. What is emphasized are several things. One is the transition from the time of the Gentiles back to the time of the Jews. You have to have that transition, and the rapture applies it. But here's another thing. The church is called the bride of Christ. And often in a marriage ceremony, in a marriage ceremony, the bride is taken to the groom's home and prepared for the marriage ceremony, and which culminates in the marriage supper, in the marriage supper. And back in those days, unlike now, weddings are not just one day. Weddings that culminate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we have biblical precedent of this, even in the book of Genesis, guess how long they last? For one week. And so what you have here is God taking his bride home, having the preparations and the wedding that will culminate in the marriage supper of the 
lamb, and it will all take approximately one week. Not a week of days, but a week of years. That's another fascinating thing. There's also symmetry. The story began with a week, so the story ends with a what? With a week. All of that is there. And you say, is there more? Yes, there is. Later. So, and it will be powerful when we see it. It will be powerful when we see it. And speaking of where that is going and what the point of that will be, in this final week of seven years, which is timed perfectly for that because it has so much theological significance and God ordained it as such to convey such theological significance, the Antichrist, he arises. And notice what it says. He will make firm a covenant. This is a very rare construction in Hebrew. Often you have God cutting a covenant. That's to start a covenant, like cutting a deal. Sometimes you have God establishing a covenant. That's him enforcing it. But making strong a covenant? You don't talk like that. That's unheard of language. And the idea of making something firm is to overpower one's enemies. It is to exert more strength and to more power and to overwhelm and to overcome opposition. And that is the word here because the Antichrist will have to do that. What do we know about Israel during this time period and leading up to this time period? There's going to be lots of wars. There's going to be lots of conflicts. That's what we even see in our modern day today, and that is even prophesied and set up for in verse 26 of chapter 9. There's a lot of battles. There's a lot of disharmony. And so what the Antichrist will have to do is to create peace in the Middle East. To actually make his plan work, he will actually have to do what no one has ever done before, and that's going to take some power. That's going to take some strength. And what does the verse say? He will make firm. He will make firm. And you say, well, 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 what would that look like? Well, that would look like this, that Israel is so safe. It says this in Ezekiel 38, that they will be living in unwalled villages, unwalled cities, because there is no need for defense or protection. That is how firm he will make it, so that all the enemies, they will be so subdued There will be complete peace, a sense of absolute tranquility, no threat. It says in another passage later on in Daniel, people will be at complete ease. There is no danger anymore. doesn't exist. That's how powerful this man will be. And on top of that, you say, well, what else would he have to do? The Bible makes it clear because the... Antichrist eventually will sit in the temple, more on that in a second, that this individual will make so firm a covenant that he not only will create peace in the Middle East and people will live in unwalled villages, he will even rebuild the temple. He will rebuild the temple. And if you say, is that a great feat? Yeah, you try to do that right now. You don't touch the temple mount. That is a physically a politically charged piece of real estate. No one messes with that region. There was even a point of time in Israel that you had to get special permission to go up to the Temple Mount. It was so politically charged. And, and, and ironically, we, we knew this shopkeeper whose uncle ran it. So that's how we kind of had our in with Ibex. But in any case, when it's that tight politically, How can someone destroy the dome of the rock, the golden dome, and rebuild a Jewish temple there? That just seems ridiculous. And that tells you how mighty this individual is. This is a genius. This is a political mastermind. This is someone who has such power and such gravitas that he can accomplish this. And think about this with me. Think about this with me. We said that this person would ordain in Ezekiel 38 for Israel to live in unwalled villages. You know what's absolutely fascinating? The Bible prophesies in Zechariah chapter 2 that the Messiah will do that for Israel. The Messiah will do that for Israel. When the Messiah, the real one, he comes, Israel will live in unwalled cities. And in fact, it'll be better than that because God will be a wall of fire around his people. 
what the Antichrist does looks a little bit like what Jesus does. And then, you know what the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48? When the Messiah returns, he will rebuild a temple. What did the Antichrist do? He built a temple. What does the Antichrist look like? He looks like Christ. Everyone will assume he is the Messiah. That is what will happen. That is what will take place. And that's why it says, he will make firm a what? A covenant. Who is the only one in the Bible that makes covenants? God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the greatest fraud that is going to take place. Because they, this guy, he is going to do all that he can so that he looks like who? Jesus, even though he is not. Even though he is not. And you say, but it's being warned right here. And there are already historical precedents of past rulers that have deceived the nation of Israel. In Daniel chapter 8, Alexander the Great and Antagus Epiphanes IV, all of them have deceived Israel at one point or the other, and, and they should have known better. They should have known that this is a trap. Yeah, I agree with you. Except, look at what the text says. He made strong a covenant with the what? With the many. You see, he didn't just overpower Israel's enemies. He united the entire nation of Israel. You say, is that a big deal? Oh, that's a big deal. There's a joke that if you ask two rabbis for advice, they'll give you three opinions. <laughs> one opinion that one rabbi holds, the other opinion that the other rabbi holds, and then the new opinion that the rabbi held against himself. That's what happens. Just to help you understand, Israel has never gotten along. Not since the book of Genesis. Have you noticed that all the brothers, all they do is fight. And then when they get to a big nation, what do they do? They just fight. They just continue the sibling rivalry on a national scale. That's what they do. They never get along. And if you still don't understand, and you need more illustration of how many problems they have, in the United States of America, give or take a little bit, we have two major political parties that last time I checked, okay? Maybe that's not exactly true, and there's a technicality here, and we have a couple more. Fine, I, I happily concede it, but we have a round two. Let's just say that. A round two. Less than 20 to be safe. Israel has around 40 political parties. 40. And you say, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Now consider this on top of that. The United States is the size of the United States of America. It's almost the size of a continent. And we have about two political parties, give or take. Israel is the size of New Jersey. And it has 40. Do you understand? No one gets along in Israel. And when you have one man who walks in and he creates peace in the Middle East, and he unifies all of Israel together. That looks like the Messiah. And though it, you should have seen it coming, it's a trap. It is. But Israel will be deluded. Some, at least, of many of Israel will be deluded at that time because of what happens here. And by the way, that word, the many, it's still false imitation of Jesus. You've heard this before. Isaiah 53, that, he, that Jesus will sprinkle the many. That's what it says. And you are even more familiar in Mark 10, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for the many. You see what he's doing here? Everything, every word he has done here, the Antichrist has prophesied to do here, it's an imitation of Christ. And sometimes imitation is the best form of flattery. I get that. But when imitation is meant to replace or displace another, that's the greatest insult. That's the greatest insult. And what you have here is the Antichrist, and he's the most winsome guy. He waltzes in at the beginning of this whole week as a hero of heroes. In fact, the New Testament affirms that. In Revelation chapter 6, it says this, that the first seal was open and a man riding a white horse. And people say, oh, that must be Christ because he's riding a white horse. Wrong, wrong. Not Christ, the Antichrist. But why is he so similar? Because he 
is supposed to be similar because he's a fake, because he's a counterfeit, because he's a lookalike. But here's what's so amazing. The Antichrist has no weapons at that time. He rides in on a horse. He's a military guy. But he has no arrows, and he carries no sword. Why? Because he conquers the whole world through politics. He is that good. He is that good. He doesn't even have to fire a shot yet. He just waltzes right in, and that's what you have right here. Now, there is a lot to be said, and for one, and I will say this again at the end of this point, but you have to understand the evil of this man, that he actually believes, not just that he opposes Christ, that he is Christ. That is such arrogance. That is such an insult to God and his son that he actually thinks he's Jesus and acts like him and wants to replace him. That is an evil we have never seen. At the same time, as we have been emphasizing about Israel, they should have known better. They, they, should, they should have realized this is a trap. This is a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, that we need to beware of counterfeits, even in our own life. Remember, John, who wrote the book of Revelation about the Antichrist, he also said this in 1 John 2 and in 1 John chapter 4, that yes, there is an Antichrist coming. The Antichrist is coming, capital A. But many Antichrists have already what? Come. They are ones who are the predecessors of that Antichrist. They are ones who are the precursors and that prefigure that final Antichrist. That is true. They are ones who imitate him. We shouldn't ever fall into the trap. You never want to follow the wrong person. You never want to go by the wrong teaching. You need to be aware of counterfeits. And just as deadly as the trap is eschatologically in its full-blown form, it is deadly even now. And so, brothers and sisters, the only way you can detect a counterfeit is to know the Word of God to know and be warned that counterfeits will come, so you should anticipate. And then how do you determine if something is counterfeit? By the truth. By the truth. You can learn every single tactic under the book, and somebody will create a new tactic. That's what criminals do. But if you always know the truth, you'll always be able to see if something matches up to the real standard. And though not the main point of this, it is a good reminder. It's the underlying principle that is here, the Antichrist will come as a counterfeit, so beware. You and I won't be there because we'll be raptured, and that's a different message for a different time that's already been preached. But, but nevertheless, the truth still remains. Beware of a counterfeit. Beware of a counterfeit. And so now you have a counterfeit, and now you have the second, which is a challenge. The challenge. This man made a treaty for one week, a period of seven years, almost like a term of office, you could say. Some, some countries in Europe right now have a term limit of seven years, a term of office of seven years. So maybe it coincides with that. We don't really know, but for a nation that's been at war for their whole life, seven years of peace sounds good. Sounds good. Seven years of having a temple sounds really good. Seven years of being united sounds spectacular. But here's what happens. Notice what it says in verse 27. In the middle of the week. In the middle of the week. Stop there. The middle of a week, and a week is seven years, is half of seven. Half of seven is 3.5 years. That's why we say that there will be a tremendous tribulation in the middle of that tribulation period. That's why we talk about the last three and a half years because of a passage like this. And it is confirmed through numerous angles. In Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 12, it says this, that there will be time, times, and half a time. Let's do some math together. Time is one. Times, plural, is more than one, which is two. And half a time is half. One plus two is three, plus half is three and a half. That's exactly what we have here, three and a half. The Bible affirms it in Daniel 7 and Daniel 12. And then in Revelation chapter 11, and again in Revelation chapter 13, it talks about how the period of the tribulation, when the Antichrist really starts to show his true colors, will be 42 months. Now think about this with me. Normally speaking, we have 12 months in a year, so three months is 
3 times 12, which is 36. Half of 12 is what? 6. 36 plus 6 is 42. 42 months, three and a half years. Now, it also says in the text that there will be 1,260 days. Just guess. What 3.5 times 360, because remember, prophetic years consistently use not 365 days, but 360 year days uh, or day years. 360 times 3.5 is, just guess, 1260. Why does the Bible do all this? It does all of it to show you we're speaking of a literal 3.5 years. This is not symbolic. This is not hypothetical. Does it have theological significance? Absolutely. But that requires it to actually be that period of time. You cannot have a figurative resurrection and have the theology of the resurrection. The resurrection has to have happened historically and real. That's how you get the theology of it. It isn't just that Jesus hypothetically died, and that's how we know that God loved us. No, he actually what? Died. You need the history of that so that the theology is true. You don't just say, oh, well, how do you know God judged the earth? Peter doesn't say, well, you know, remember that myth when God flooded the entire world? That's how we know God has wrath. No, no, no. It is because God actually did those things that the theology is true. In the same way, this three and a half, it means something. We'll talk about more what it means in a second. But it has to be that way for the theology of it to be true. And the Bible says in all kinds of ways, even by converting units, that this is exactly the way it is, and this is exactly the time period that we are talking about. It is not a figurative speech. It's not a literary expression. It is 3.5 years, 42 months, 1,260 days. That's what we're talking about. And this is the period that some people call the Great Tribulation, not just the Tribulation, but the Great Tribulation. They, some people call this in, in the scriptures, like in Joel and in Malachi, not just the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord, but the great and awesome day of the Lord, because it's a unique subset of the day of the Lord. In Jeremiah, it's called the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble. Why? Because this period is a time of such great distress and such great trial that it has never been seen in history before. And you say, well, what makes it so bad? Notice what the text compactly says. In the middle of the week, he, that is the Antichrist, will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Put an end to sacrifice and offering. Sacrifices refer often to animal sacrifices, and offerings refer to that which is non-animal. Sacrifices often refer to that which is obligatory, commanded by the law. Offering refers often to what is done voluntarily. And so when you put these two things together, you get the entire worship system, the entire religious system of Israel. What you do voluntarily, what you do involuntarily. What you do with animals, what you do with not animals. What you do in, in with with offerings and what you do with sacrifices. All of this comes together in the totality of worship and the totality of religion. And the Antichrist, he is putting it all to, to cease. He is making it all end. That is what he wants to do. And with that, you could think of it this way. Israel thought that the Antichrist built the temple so that their worship would be fulfilled but the Antichrist's real end goal was to actually cause their worship not to be fulfilled, but to be what? Finished. That's why he did it. He built the temple so that he could raise up the entire worldview of Israel, the entire system that they operated in, the entire system that they thought in, and he wanted to bring it all out so that he could annihilate it all. He could destroy it all. And just to help us understand how devastating this is and how extensive and deep is this plot, it's just astounding, the word end here. The word end here in Hebrew is the word Shabbat, where you get the word Sabbath. Now think about this with me. The Sabbath comes at the end of a week. What have we been talking about throughout this passage? This prophecy is called the 70-week prophecy. 
We've talked about 62. We've talked about seven weeks. This is the 70th week of that 70-week prophecy. Here is what the diabolical plot of the Antichrist is. Just as the Sabbath was intended to end a week, so the Antichrist desires to end Israel, to end their history, to terminate them. Just as, think about this, the Sabbath was meant to be that which actually determined the purpose of history, the purpose of God's creation. Because after all, on the Sabbath, God declared that the Sabbath was what? Holy. And that everything should rest in holiness unto God. And everything that was created had been created in six days. So on the Sabbath, all of that had that purpose. All of it should be involved there. The Antichrist says, no, I get to set a new purpose for this world. I will tell you what it is. And it won't be anything that God has. It'll be everything I have. You could think of it this way. Just as Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath, what the Antichrist was doing preemptively was declaring that he is now the new Lord of the Sabbath. That is what is going on in the text. This is a complete replacement of one system with another system. Here's the, here's the highest way to perhaps think about it. God intended this final week to be the construction of a new creation one where everything was supposed to be the way it was supposed to be. That's why he, in part, ordained it to be seven years, one last week. Just like a week began creation, so a week will culminate that creation. Here's what the Antichrist wants to do. He wants to take the last week and make it his own creation, fulfilling it as a depraved, wicked, evil creation. That is his agenda. You see, there's a lot of reasons why a week is called a week. A seven set of seven years is called a week. It's because, in part, it highlights not only God's agenda, but the Antichrist's agenda and all its maliciousness. And for this reason, because he wants to create a, a depraved creation, the fullness of a depraved creation, a fullness of an anti-God, anti-Christ creation. Notice what it says in Continuing in the verse, he doesn't just cause these things to cease and to end. It says this, that on a wing of abominations, the one who makes desolate will come. The word abominations, plural, has often refers to the way idolatry is viewed by the scriptures as despicable, as despised. And it is an abomination. And there's a lesson in this. Sometimes in our hearts, we're just very indifferent to false religion. We are just okay with it, and we don't see it as the insult against God that it really is. It reminds me one time of a missionary in India who went into a Hindu temple, and in going in, he ran out, and he just wept because he said, I cannot stand to see Christ so dishonored. I cannot stand to see how they have perverted him. Some of us would just view that as a tourist attraction. Do we really view idolatry the way the Bible has us view idolatry? Not just that's dumb, that's foolish, and there, the Bible does talk about the folly of idolatry, but the way it insults God is so despicable to us because we love our God so. This man will ride on a wing of abomination, not just one, but what? Many of the most despicable idolatries. He will start to trade out every part of the truth for that which is a lie. And if you say, is that really his intention? Yes, it really is his intention. Think about the book of Revelation. You have the dragon, you have the beast of the earth, and you have the beast of the sea. Three, just like the Trinity. You have a person who not only replaces the triune Godhead with himself, you have a, God, a person who replaces God as creator with himself. He makes an image of himself, and then he makes the image live in the book of Revelation. Well, God made us in his what? Image, and he made us alive. 
this Antichrist is trying to replace God as creator. He is trying to replace worship because he's the center of all worship. He even tries to replace all holidays at Christmas. To honor Christ, we give gifts, do we not? In Revelation chapter 11 and 12, what we have recorded is that the two witnesses, when they die because the Antichrist kills them, they celebrate it for three days, giving each other what? Gifts. They have a total, total replacement of every aspect of truth, of every aspect of what the Bible has revealed, every aspect of theology, every aspect of of God himself, and the Antichrist is just trading it out systematically. He does ride in on a wing of abominations. Every abomination possible, it is carrying him in as the whole world is plummeting into a delusion. And we get a taste of it now. You know, you say, does the world trade out God's truth uh, for its own fantasy? Yes. That's why you don't know what a woman is anymore. That's why you don't know what marriage is anymore. That's why some of these basic ideas and, and why math is now considered racist and all this kind of stuff. Why is that? Because when you start to trade out what the Bible has said and even presupposed for a lie, you have a reprobate mind. But if you say, man, we got it so bad, you haven't seen anything yet. What happens when everyone tries to do everything possible under the sun to replace everything that is true with a lie? That is what you have the Antichrist doing because he wants the world to be a new world, not a perfected creation, but a creation perfected in depravity. And he is the one who makes desolate because he will kill anybody and oppose anyone and torture anyone who stands in his way. He will wage war against the saints. That's what it says. And so you have a counterfeit. That's the Antichrist. And he has certainly challenged God. He has challenged God to say this. You wanted to take this creation and make it new in one week. I'm going to do the direct opposite. And I'm going to hijack the week right in the middle to do so. That is what he's going to do. And you say, man, that is depressing. Yeah, that's why you need the third point. <laughs> the crushing. The crushing. You have the counterfeit, the challenge, and the crushing. I love this. Notice the next phrase. Until, stop there. <laughs> the reason that that matters is because there's going to be an end to this. It's only three and a half years, brothers and sisters. It's so terrible, yes. It is so malicious, yes. It is so vile and wicked, yes. But it's only, what, three and a half years, 1,260 days. As we've said before, God, he put his people through trial before, and it was about 26 to 2,800 days. This is half that time, why? Because it's twice the pain. God knows how to limit. Why is this only three and a half years? Because God ordained it so. Because there will be an end to it. And what will happen at that end? I love this. It says that destruction will come until complete destruction. This is so great. I, I really, really, really love this. In Ezekiel chapter 20, it talks about how God... God made his people desolate. He made them a wasteland. He ruined them. He made them desolate. And it says that over and over and over again. But God says this, but I showed you mercy because I did not make a complete destruction of you. At least I didn't do that. Yeah, I might have desolated you. I might have, I might have ruined you, but I didn't do a complete destruction. What does that show you? Desolation is one category of destruction, but there is a higher category, which is what? A complete destruction destruction. That is much more. That is much more intense. And what does God say he does to the Antichrist? He doesn't just desolate him. He what? He makes a complete destruction of him. Here is the Antichrist. He is the one who makes desolate. He is the one who has such a reign of terror, and it's insane, and it's terrible, and it's terrifying, and everything. That's true. We understand that. But here's what God does. He says, two can play at this game. You can unleash all your wrath that you want. You can unleash all your destruction that you want, but two can play at this game. And when God gets into the game, his destruction is not only righteous, his destruction is also what? Complete. And all the destruction that the desolator had done is nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the final say. 
and he makes an end of that Antichrist in a way that is so much more powerful, everyone recognizes who has all the power and the glory. And it's not just that. It's not just that. Notice, until the complete destruction happens, and it says this, that it is poured out, notice. It is poured out against the one who makes desolate. Notice this phrase, it is poured out. You know, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, as he's praying to God, here's what he says. God, you've poured out your discipline on us. God, you've overwhelmed and you've flooded us with all the chastisement, all the discipline. And here's what Gabriel tells Daniel. Daniel, you don't get it. You may have had a flood of discipline now, but the Antichrist will have the flood of God's wrath forever. That's what you have to understand. You may have it now, but he has it forever. And this gives us perspective. Brothers and sisters, it is better now to suffer under the discipline of God than to suffer forever under his condemnation. That's what you have to know. You might say, but discipline stinks. It is hard for a while. Hebrews agrees with you. But you rather share in his holiness than to share in hell. And this is what we must remember. There will be a time when all the discipline that we've had and all the mockery that we've received for it, it transfers from us to our enemies. And that is a solemn day. And it reminds us, and here's the second thing, that God loves his people and can distinguish between us and his enemies. He knows that. And here's the final thing in this, that one day God will avenge his people. All those days that Israel was mocked under God's chastisement, all those times that we under trial have been mocked, and all types of believers across the world have been laughed at and scorned at for the way they have suffered, there will be one who has the last laugh and it will not be the foe. You may have it poured out on you now, but it will be poured out against those who persecuted us later on, and that's the final say. It is against the one who makes desolate. Why does that matter? Because God raised up this counterfeit, this challenger to crush him this way. And you say, why? You can think of it this way. The whole time the Antichrist is thinking, I'll build Israel a temple so that I can eradicate everything about them. I can raise it all up to get rid of it all. And God said, you didn't realize this. That's what I was doing with you. I was raising up the Antichrist so that all evil would be consolidated in him. So that when I end the Antichrist, I effectively end all what? Evil. It's all taken care of. It is all judged. This is the resolution to the problem of evil right here. This is the resolution to the problem of evil all right here. It is defeated, and I love this. Notice what the word says in the end of verse 27, that it will be poured against him because that desolation, that final judgment, it is decreed. It is decreed. It's sure. God has cut a path. That's the nature of predestination. God carving a path forward through history, pre-setting a direction and a road for all events to take place. That's what God does. And this word was used earlier of what Antiochus Epiphanes did against Israel. Did that happen? Yes, it did. God used this word earlier to describe what happened in 70 AD. Did that happen? Yeah, it happened in 70 AD. So you know the end is sure. The end is sure. There's no question about it. God has a timetable. God has a schedule. It looks like this. Seven weeks, then 62 weeks right after, then the Messiah comes. Happened just like planned. After that, there's a gap of the times of the Gentiles. That happened. We're living into it. And then, without warning, one final week will happen. Three and a half years, the Antichrist will waltz in. There will be tough times in it to be sure, but he will act all nice and a genius. And the last three and a half years, all hell will break loose. But God did that so that he could crush evil for all time and bring in an age of everlasting righteousness. Here's the amazing thing to think about. Daniel never lived to see the beginning of the 70 weeks. He never lived to see that time. He, well, maybe, I mean, if he was like 200 years old, he, he might have seen it, but most likely he didn't. 
Brothers and sisters, we've seen the 69 and the gap. All we're waiting for is the and. And if we're thinking, are we sure it's going to happen? Daniel believed this without seeing one of the beginning of the week at all. He was just waiting for it to happen, waiting for the starting gun. Brothers and sisters, are we of so little faith that we see the 69 and the gap, and we're just waiting for one verse, and we doubt the one verse? No way. This is what's going to happen. And in all of its design, that's devastating, but all of its design, that is glorious. And in the end, there will be a time when there is everlasting righteousness. Atonement will happen. Transgression and sin will be made an end of. And the Messiah will stand at a reconstructed temple. And all the world will hail him as the true hero in counter-distinction to the Antichrist. That day is coming. And you know when it's coming? It's coming right on time. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for the plan. It is laid out crystal clear. There are reasons for why we believe what we believe. And we know the schedule. And we are so thankful it's all decreed. May our eyes and may our minds be such that we don't just think this is a nice tale. This is a good story. But this is our reality. This is what we hope in. And that hope is not fictitious. The hope is real. We're just waiting for one more week. That's it. And we just have to think that way, oh God, and give you all the glory for such a brilliant plan, for such a marvelous plan that magnifies your son. Come, Lord Jesus. That is our prayer. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.